Okay, I'm going to read the Bible for us this afternoon. If you want to turn to page 5 and 6 of your zines, the reading comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it's a long one, so just bear with me. Uh, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front, where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobaseth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. And then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. 
David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time the mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Thanks for reading for us, Beck, and uh, leading us in prayer. Matt, my name's Craig. I'm the minister here at the Garrison, and it uh, gives me a great joy to welcome you. Uh, I've got to meet a couple of us before the service began uh, who are new this afternoon, and I really hope you're encouraged by your time with us uh, here at church. Um, for those of us who have been coming regularly, we're in the middle of a se- uh, series called Messy Faith, and uh, as as we've explored. It's looking at the interaction between mental health and Christian faith. Um, We've got a little bit of a a tagline that we've been looking at from the book of Philippians, written by the Apostle Paul. In chapter 1, he writes this. He says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, That God is at work in our lives, in our world, and uh, he is present with us, uh, even in the mess. And in fact, sometimes he's most present in the mess. And that's what we've been exploring over these last few weeks. Uh, this week, we've come to uh, the topic of abuse and trauma. And uh, for such a serious topic, I'm so thankful uh, this afternoon for us to be joined um, by our guest, Kylie. Uh, She and I met earlier this year as I've been studying my master's in pastoral counselling and just had some really helpful and insightful conversations and I really wanted her to be able to share with our church family. Um, Kylie has made this an area of focus for her work as a psychologist and uh, from that experience uh, she will share with us this afternoon as we sort of help to understand and navigate this topic the experience, and also how we can continue to grow to be a loving community, which is what we keep seeking to do. Um, So I'm going to invite Kylie to to come up, and um, again, thank you for joining us this afternoon, and uh, thank you for sharing with us from your experience. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's nice to meet some of you before the service, and hopefully I can meet more of you afterwards. Have you ever encountered royalty? Did you see Will and Kate or Mary and Frederick when they were in Sydney a couple of years ago? Or perhaps you watched Harry and Meghan's wedding. Perhaps you're intrigued by music royalty or sporting royalty or royalty in whatever field you are most interested. Have you ever wondered how you ended up somewhere after an unusual and disorienting day? Maybe you've been lost and tired in a foreign city and you've tried to navigate your way to where you're staying or you've discovered a problem at home or at your workplace and you can't for the life of you figure out how you got there or what to do about it. Well, 2 Samuel 11 recounts what must have been an incredibly unusual and disorienting day for Bathsheba as she encountered royalty. 
Her day starts looking rather normal. Her soldier husband is away, as is usual for this time of year. She takes a bath in the afternoon, presumably after her day's work is done and the sun has heated the water on the roof to a tolerable temperature. Then there's a knock on the door. She has been summoned by the king. We're not told whether Bathsheba agrees to go with the palace messengers, nor are we told whether she agrees to sleep with David. Perhaps the biblical account of Bathsheba's day represents her life in that society, where her freedoms and choices are not of any consequence. Because the king gets what the king wants. Within 2 Samuel 11, Bathsheba endures 10 life-changing events. Presumably she's missing her husband, who is off at war, though we're not particularly told of Bathsheba's feelings for Uriah, nor whether her marriage to him was voluntary. She's had the uncertainty and fear of being summoned by the king. She has a sexual encounter with David, possibly consensual, possibly rape. David implicates her in adultery, regardless of whether she consented. She had the disorientation of going home again after such an encounter with the king. She had to tell David that she was pregnant, possibly fearing for her life after he received that news. She would have had morning sickness, tiredness and the brain and body changes that come with early pregnancy. She was told that her husband is dead and she mourns him. She's brought back to the palace and back to David She moves in as she's now essentially his possession. She has her wedding, she's married to David, and she is added as his seventh wife. She has a full-term pregnancy, she gives birth to a child, and as we're told later in 2 Samuel, this child dies. David's kingship, unlike most modern-day monarchies, has his power unchecked. Modern-day monarchs are community-minded and their power is checked by parliaments. But David is an almighty ruler, ruler of every citizen and of the military. He holds the power of life and death. His presence alone would be disorienting. David, throughout the rest of his life, demonstrates a great deal more integrity than he does in this chapter. So let's not allow our understanding of David to be shaped entirely by 2 Samuel 11. He's described as a man after God's own heart, and God promises him both a royal dynasty in 2 Samuel 7, and that God's favour will not be taken from David. Luckily for David, these promises depend only on God's faithfulness, not on David's obedience. We often say that David is a murderer and an adulterer, and he is, but his list of sins is much longer. The slippery slope that leads to murder and adultery is greased with every decision that David makes. David's actions are deliberate, calculated, and repeated. He commits 10 sinful, abusive acts just in this chapter. In an example of spectacularly poor leadership, David, the head of the military, sends his troops off to war, but he stays behind in the comfort and safety of his palace and he takes an afternoon nap. He wanders about on the roof of his palace in the late afternoon, perhaps lazily, you would think a king has work to do, and he sees Bathsheba going about her day. 
He lusts after her and acts on it by summoning her to him. After he's told that she is the daughter of one of his advisors and that she is married to Uriah, one of David's mighty soldiers, he sleeps with her anyway. He's now sinning against God, Bathsheba and Uriah. David would have known that the law of Leviticus, Leviticus 20.10, prescribes the death penalty for both he and Bathsheba for adultery, yet he considers himself above the law. David attempts to cover his sin by calling Uriah home from war so that he would sleep with his wife, but Uriah, in his integrity, does not go home to his wife. Instead, he remains at the palace gates with other servants. David, who refused deployment, took another man's wife for his own, but Uriah, who is called home from deployment, does not sleep with his own wife. David again attempts to conceal his sin, and this time he gets Uriah drunk, again hoping he'll go home and sleep with Bathsheba, but even drunk, Uriah has more integrity than David. Instead of dealing with his sin before God, before Bathsheba, and before Uriah, David continues his plan of concealment and seeks to silence those he has implicated. He sends Uriah off with his own death warrant and arranges a deliberate military blunder to dispose of Uriah. In this plan to murder Uriah, other soldiers are unnecessarily killed too, and David is responsible for their deaths when he should have been fighting alongside or perhaps in front of them to protect them. Bathsheba's time of mourning for Uriah is presumably a week. David has a week to reconsider his actions, but he still goes ahead and marries Bathsheba, his seventh wife. David's abuse of power has far-reaching effects and devastating impacts. David's ego goes unchecked. His power over his army and his people means his sin carries far into the lives of others. Abusive behaviour often causes trauma for the vulnerable or the weak who receive or witness that behaviour. So what is trauma? Well, it has many definitions, but trauma is any deeply distressing or damaging experience. It can involve experiencing or witnessing events that involve threatened or actual death or injury, or events which evoke fear, helplessness or horror. When we witness violence, especially as children, our brain can interpret it as though we are experiencing it. Trauma is often the result of an event or a series of events that exceeds our capacity to cope. Traumas can take many forms, and I'll just touch on psychological and a bit of physical this afternoon. Psychological trauma manifests when an event cannot be computed by our brain, generally because traumatic events shouldn't be part of the normal human experience. Death, accidents, displacement, war, violence, to name a few. But there are smaller scale traumas too, breakups, affairs, bitter or long-lasting conflicts, poverty. One of the definitions of trauma is that it is worldview shifting for the victim. The most common shift is from a belief that generally I am safe in the world to a belief that I am not safe in the world. Some of the psychological symptoms of trauma are confusion, poor memory, poor concentration, anxiety, panic and fear. They are not the person's fault. They are predictable. 
after what the person has been through. Physical traumas can include all sorts of physical injuries, accidents, it might be violence, motor vehicle accidents, uh, injuries from natural disasters, fires, floods, that sort of thing. One school of trauma theory is based on a book called The Body Keeps the Score. And it shows that psychological trauma manifests not only in the brain, but in the body. A trauma of voicelessness might manifest as being unable to speak. A trauma of losing a child in pregnancy might manifest as stomach pain with no other medical cause. A trauma of witnessing a murder might manifest as poor eyesight. The body keeps the score. I often wonder what Bathsheba's body felt like. Was she still in pain from sleeping with David? If she was raped, I can guarantee it. Was she bleeding or bruised from being brought in or held down? Did she have a feeling of disgust at her own body for attracting David to her, yet a competing and confusing satisfaction for being attractive to a king? Common physical symptoms of trauma are headaches, nausea, exhaustion, elevated heart rate and clumsiness. After everything that Bathsheba has been through, her mental, mental health would have been massacred. She chose none of what is recounted to us in 2 Samuel. I would expect Bathsheba to be afraid, grief-stricken, weak, hypervigilant, sleepless, depressed, anxious, with frequent nightmares and flashbacks. One of the most disturbing things that I find in this passage is that Bathsheba rarely speaks. All she says is, I am pregnant, and perhaps that was even written down. She's an object, more or less, in David's game. David's in charge. He is the actor, and she is acted upon. The events in 2 Samuel 11 are common events that narcissists conjure. Narcissists treat their sphere as designed entirely to meet their own needs, never caring for the needs of others. As Bathsheba becomes David's wife and lives in the palace, that will pretty well guarantee that she will have daily trauma triggers. Triggers differ from person to person, but anything about David or the palace will remind her of what she's been through. It could be the smells, it could be the people, it could be the colour of the bedsheets, the sound of doors opening and closing, the feeling of her feet on the floor, David's voice and David's touch. And if while listening to this story you have felt sick, as I have, then David's sin has impacted your body and brain too. So how does abuse happen? Well, abuse grows out of harmfully enacting power over another, placing our own needs before the other, hurting, harming, steamrolling, ignoring the other. It can be done through malice, but it is usually done through incompetence, defensiveness, or laziness. Abuse is another word for sin, and trauma is another word for the effects of sin. Abuse is perpetuated and facilitated when social structures endorse or condone someone being unfairly in charge of others or someone behaving unfairly while in charge of others. The inequality can be based on anything, gender, race, nationality, ability, size, sexual orientation, strength, wealth, health or intellect. 
powers need checks and balances. Accountability, transparency, review and oversight are necessary. Absolute power, as David had, invites corruption. Propensity to abuse can also be part of family legacies when the sins of the fathers are passed down from generation to generation. And as was alluded to earlier in the service, in 2 Samuel 12, we read that Amnon, David's son, carries on his father's legacy. He lusted after his half-sister Tamar and rapes her. Many think that abuse stems from anger and alcohol. Let me assure you, it doesn't. Entitlement and the need for power and control is the root of abuse. Alcohol and anger can be factors at play, but they are never the cause. Uriah showed us this, because even after David gets him drunk, he still acts with integrity. So how is trauma overcome? How is abuse ended? Well, in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan calls David to account. He tells a parable about a man who took what he shouldn't have, and David responds that that man deserves to die. Nathan then says, you are that man. David's moral compass was still intact. He just thought the rules didn't apply to him. And in Psalm 51, we have an insight into David's confession before God. But again, throughout the rest of the Bible, we remain largely unaware of the impact that David's actions have had on Bathsheba and others, including Uriah's other family members who will be mourning him and the families of the other murdered soldiers. So to the powerful amongst us here today, the responsibility to end abuse and protect from trauma lies especially with us. The powerful amongst us include men, heterosexual people, the educated, the rich, those of Anglo appearance, the able-bodied, the intelligent, the employed, those with platforms and microphones, and those with skills and gifts. Our privilege is for service. Many sin, many sin by thinking that service means giving, and it does, but to assume that we as the more powerful person can give something to the less powerful can be a perpetuation of our pride, of viewing the less powerful person as worse. Power, truly used as service, is also demonstrated through receiving. Receiving all the pain, all the stories, all the horrors, all the oppression. Receiving all the exclusion, all the rejection, receiving the stories of sexism, of racism, of elitism, of abuse and pain from the less powerful around us. I suspect that had David heard from those less powerful around him, his soldiers, Bathsheba and Uriah, he would have behaved very differently. He would have been fighting alongside his army. And if he were ever to meet Bathsheba, he would have respected her privacy respected her marriage and respected her personhood and not seen her as a sexual target to be taken for himself. Some may say that Bathsheba benefited in the end from becoming a member of the royal family, but the text is silent. We can't assume that. 
Her experience remains undocumented, her story largely untold. And so to think about trauma and abuse in our own church, the first thing to say is that it happens. Recent public conversations around domestic violence in the Anglican and the wider church have reminded us that Christians are not immune. The second thing to say is that we must be power literate. Some of the worst abusers are power blind. Those that deny power differentials are nearly always the ones who hold the power. Perpetrators are almost always in positions of authority over the ones they harm, else they would have no vehicle to exercise their harm. We need to be power aware before we can become abuse aware. Trauma is a deep wound and we must remember that an attempt to reason a person out of trauma is an act of re-victimisation. Trauma is healed by silence and honour and presence and love. The traumatised person believes that the world is no longer safe. Be the antithesis. Be safe to that person at all costs. If trauma is hard for us to conceptualise, we can compare it to a severe physical injury, like a ruptured organ, for example. The surgeon that assesses that injury and performs the surgery is skilled, trained, licensed, able, supervised and accountable. Too often the emotional and psychological surgeons of the church are well-meaning, but nothing else. They hold little understanding of the impacts of what has happened, but they attempt surgery anyway. Can you imagine undergoing surgery from a surgeon who is well-meaning, but untrained? We refer to mechanics to fix our lawyers, <laughs> mechanics to fix our cars. <laughs> Oops, that'd be interesting. Lawyers to fix our legal problems, hairdressers to fix our hair, and doctors to oversee our health. Problems of, of abuse and trauma need professionals too. But just as the surgery patient has the need for other support, like transport, visits, meals, shopping, cooking, cleaning, so does the survivor of abuse. We may not be the surgeon, but the church can provide some mighty fine support staff to listen, to care, to pay for appointments, to cook meals, to clean and take care of kids while the patient recovers. When you're caring for a victim of trauma or abuse, don't be like Job's friends who talk a lot and blame Job for his situation. Be like Jesus who says, neither do I condemn you. When it comes to holding perpetrators to account, the church has a significant role to play. If you have power to see, understand, and stop abuse taking hold, then you must. Use your power to redress what has been broken, else you are complicit in the abuse occurring. Just as Nathan held David to account, so we must speak truth to power and hold abusers to account. Love always protects. Love considers other be others better than yourself not just in thought, but in structures, in decision-making, in demographics, in staff and elder appointments, in every area of church life, give extra weight to the voice and needs of the vulnerable. So as I finish, here's another question. When has royalty ever encountered you? When has royalty ever emptied itself of all privilege, fame, 
and come into your world to know what it's like to live in your skin. When has royalty ever emptied itself of all but love and used its power to serve, love, give, never hurting, never harming, always uplifting? Well, good news. King Jesus, God's chosen king for eternity, has done just that. His crown was made of thorns, not gold, so that he could endure the pain that was set aside for the abuse that we have all perpetrated against others and suffered at the hand of others. Jesus came to show true kingship, to hold abuse to account, to raise the dead to life, to set the captives free, to bring justice, to bring powers and principalities low, to heal through love and comfort, and to wipe away every tear. Hallelujah. Jesus, not David, is king. Let me pray. Great Father of us all, teach us to empty ourselves of entitlement, greed, abuse and domination. Help us to use our privilege to serve. Turn our ears and hearts towards the needs of the voiceless and the powerless amongst us. Thank you, Jesus, for being the King. Amen.